Well, good morning. So before we get into our text this morning, I'd like to just pray uh, that the Lord would bless our time together. Lord, as we come to you this morning, we recognize that we need you. Father, we know that if your spirit is not at work in our hearts this morning, then this message will fall on deaf ears. We ask you and pray that you would help us to heed your word carefully this morning. God, I ask that you would speak through me and that you would use your word, that you would use this message to accomplish all that you have for us this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 2. It will be our text for this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 237. It's a joy to be with you this morning, and I'm excited to open God's Word with you. So last week we looked at uh, David's lament for Saul and Jonathan in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. If you remember, this account takes place right on the heels of the, mount, of the battle on Mount Gilboa, where Saul, uh, Jonathan, and the rest of Israel are defeated um, by the Philistine army. And as we come into this chapter, as we enter into chapter 2, we see that David's long-awaited moment has finally arrived. You know, though he won't become king over all of Israel until chapter 5, in chapter 2, he will officially begin his reign. And at this point, his years on the run from Saul are now behind him, and by God's grace, and only by God's grace, his integrity has remained intact. Though far from perfect, David has remained a man who truly fears the Lord. Despite the many opportunities that seem to present themselves for him to take action against Saul, David never acted out against Saul or against the people of Israel. He has not sought out his own advantages. He has maintained righteousness and faithfulness. And although he has certainly suffered in many ways for this, it was now time for God's purpose for David that's been long anticipated, even back when he was a young man in 1 Samuel 16 and had been confirmed again and again and again through not only the Lord, but also through Jonathan, through his wife Abigail, and even through Saul himself. It was now time for this purpose to advance. It was now time for David to become king. But the question quickly becomes, on the heels of this battle, how is that going to happen? Israel has just been defeated by the Philistine army. The situation is very dire at this point. So this means that now that the Philistines have defeated the Israelites, the Philistines now occupied many of these cities in the northern areas of the land uh, on both sides of the Jordan River, as we see in 1 Samuel 31. And so what role, the question becomes, is this enemy going to play in the days following their great victory? Well, it's certainly difficult to imagine that they just withdrew from the Israelites, and later on in chapter 5 we'll see that's not what happens it doesn't seem like their influence is that significant because we actually don't hear from them, like I said, until the middle of chapter 5, and that's after David has become king over all of Israel. And so what is important, what seems to be important, and what the author wants us to see is not what the enemy is up to, but what David is up to, and really what God is up to. What he wants us to understand about David becoming king is that David's ascent was in direct obedience to the words of the Lord. So let's go ahead and look at verses 1 through 7 as we consider this account and we see David's faithful beginning. 
After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And the Lord said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So, years earlier, if you remember, Samuel had told Saul that as the Lord's anointed king over Israel, there was one thing above all else that was required of him. He must listen to the words of the Lord. And what ultimately caused Saul's kingship to fail is precisely because, as Samuel tells him in 1 Samuel 28, he did not obey the voice of the Lord. But David's moment to become king began in a very different way than Saul's did. Verse 1 sets the tone. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. And the beginning of this verse where it says after this shows that only a little bit of time has passed since Saul and Jonathan's death, since Israel's defeat, and since David's lament upon hearing the tragic news. And the first thing that David does is inquire of the Lord. So back in 1 Samuel chapter 27, we see David at a low point, and he seems to trust his own logic and flee from Israel, and he lives among the Philistines for 16 long months. And during that time of him in Philistine, in Philistia, in Gath, and Ziklag, there's hardly any mention of the Lord. There's hardly any mention of David turning to the Lord. As one commentator noted, the sweet psalmist of Israel is silent. But here, David is not going to make that same mistake twice. Unlike chapter 27, David makes no moves before he seeks direction from the Lord. And this was most likely done through uh, Abiathar, the priest who has been with David. And though it's unclear exactly how David sought his guidance, it is perfectly clear who he sought his guidance through. And in David's question, we see that the word translated, go up, is repeated five times in verses 1 through 3. And the leading idea here is David's ascent to the throne. It's David's ascent to the kingship. And the crucial point is that he went up in obedience to the Lord. And in this, in this obedience, David really foreshadows the one who would, many years later, be highly exalted through his path of obedience, as we read about in Philippians chapter 2. God's king, who is first David and then finally Jesus, did not grasp power out of selfish ambition. And the path to their kingship was through obedience to the Lord. And in this obedience, we see the Lord tell David to leave Ziklag and to head to Hebron. As one commentator points out, by this, David burns his Philistine bridges behind him. 
This is why the writer also mentions that David's two wives, as well as all of the men who were with him and their families, as those who also followed David to Hebron. David has completely broken things off with Philistia, and he has really made a new beginning in Judah, and specifically in Hebron, which is a very important city about 19 miles south of Jerusalem. And it really is difficult to overstate the significance of the Lord's direction to David to go up to Hebron. Hebron was a town that was overflowing in covenant memories. Hebron was where Abraham had first settled and first built an altar to the Lord. This was also where the Lord had appeared to him and where he heard the good news that Sarah would have a son, as we see in Genesis 18. Hebron is also where Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Leah were all buried. Hebron was the location of the only portion of the promised land that would become the possession of Abraham in Genesis 23. So this made it the first part of the land to be given to Abraham and his descendants as what was promised by the Lord. So we might say that Hebron is where Israel's life in the land of God's promise began. And so with that in mind, David's journey to Hebron links his story with Abraham's. It suggests that David's rise is the continuation of the story that began there with Abraham. And it connects David with the promises that God has made to Abraham. And so this detail is a very important indication that what God will do through David is of massive significance because it is connected to God's promise to Abraham to bring blessing to all of the families of the earth in Genesis 12.3. So David's going up to Hebron anticipates the fact that Jesus will later be introduced in the first sentence in the New Testament as the son of David and as the son of Abraham. And the key to understanding David is the key to understanding Jesus. And that key is God's promises to Abraham. And it's here in this very important town that the men of Judah anoint David king over the house of Judah. As Dale Davis points out, it is here that the kingdom of God becomes visible in the world for those who have eyes to see. It is here that for the first time the Lord's Chosen king visibly rules on earth. And as king, the first thing that David does is send a message to the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had risked their lives to retrieve the bodies of Saul and his sons at the end of the book of 1 Samuel in chapter 31. And David, not wanting to let a noble deed go unnoticed, sends these messengers to thank the men of Jabesh-Gilead for their courageous act, to bless them in the Lord, And he also sends these messengers to appeal to them, to appeal to the men uh, to pledge their allegiance to David's kingship. In this message, David is actually mixing his gratitude for them with a campaigning message of sorts. As we read this account, we may be tempted not to pay much attention to the men of uh, Jabesh Gilead. Um, You know, we may just see them as uh, simply a minor detail in this story. However, I'd like for us to really pause here for a second and consider these men and their situation because I think there is a lot of relevance for us today. I would even argue that we need to see ourselves as citizens of Jabesh Gilead. For I would venture to say that's that's even where believers live. 
Of course, I'm not talking about physically, but spiritually. Jabesh Gilead is sandwiched uh, between David and, as we'll see in just a moment, the other kingship that is trying to, to come to fruition in Abner and Ishbosheth. And so, in other words, it is between the true kingdom that is vying for its allegiance and a fake kingdom expecting its allegiance that we'll see again in just a few moments in verses 8 through 11. And so, to defy this kingdom, this fake kingdom, would take courage. And this courage only comes from grace. So I would venture to say that Jabesh Gilead is a perfect picture of Romans 7.21, where Paul says, So that I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Even when you look at a map, you will see that Jabesh Gilead is right near Mahanaim, and we actually have one up there now. Um, And so if you look at that, you'll see Jabesh Gilead is right near Mahanaim. That's where Abner will make Ishbosheth king. Um, And you can see Mahanaim is just south of Jabesh Gilead. And then if you keep going south and then you cross over the Dead Sea, you'll see that that is where Hebron is located. So even from a geographical standpoint, evil lies close at hand. And I believe the lesson here is to recognize that there is an enemy that lies close at hand. As believers, the the good news is that we have been delivered from this enemy. Colossians 1.13 says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. However, we also read in 1 Peter 5.18 that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for who he can devour. And so we, as believers, must stay vigilant. Though we have been transferred to the kingdom of God, we still face the constant temptation to return to the kingdom of darkness. And it is only with the help of the Spirit that we are able to resist that temptation. And in this way, I think the men of Jabesh Gilead are a great physical example of the spiritual struggle that believers face. And as we continue in this narrative, and we've talked a lot about David's faithful beginning, but we must now turn to the other side and turn our attention to Abner's unfaithful beginning. So let's go ahead and look at verses 8 through 11. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David, and the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So what's interesting is the text doesn't tell us how the men of Jabesh Gilead responded. It doesn't even tell us if they responded at all. That's not what's highlighted by the author. The author instead focuses on Abner, who is related to Saul. And there's a debate here whether Abner is Saul's uncle or his cousin. I'll be honest, as I was studying, I was trying to figure out so I could come up here and tell you what he is. Um, But there is so much debate, and and I was so confused because everything in Scripture seems to show that he's 
Saul's uncle, 1 Samuel 10, talks about how Saul's uncle said to him, and everyone would say, that's Abner. 1 Samuel 14 talks about Abner being Saul's uncle, but then every commentary I turned to said that Abner was Saul's cousin, and it's a determined fact. And so I was, I don't know. So if one of you guys know for sure, we can talk about that afterwards. I would love to know, but my head was spinning, and I was like, okay, I'm spending too much time on this minor detail. The important part is that Abner is related to Saul. He is a relative of Saul, and he was he also served as the commander of Saul's army. And what is, what is important to understanding, what is highlighted and crucial to understanding and assessing verses 8 through 11 is grasping the significance of Abner's actions in the larger context. And I think that C.F. Keel states this point very clearly and very well. He says, and I quote, the promotion of Ishbosheth as king was not only a continuation of the hostility of Saul towards David, but also an open act of rebellion against Jehovah, who had rejected Saul and chosen David prince over Israel, and who had given such distinct proofs of this election in the eyes of the whole nation that even Saul had been convinced of the appointment of David to be his successor upon the throne." So whereas David waited patiently for the Lord to appoint him king in the Lord's timing, Abner quickly tried to take things into his own hands and seize this opportunity for power. In other words, whereas David trusted in the Lord, Abner trusted in himself. And over the next few chapters, we're going to see the massive difference between David who trusts God at every turn and Abner who trusts himself at every turn, which ultimately leads to Abner's downfall, eventually leading to his death. And this is why the theme for our, or this theme is why for our transformative truth, I've used Proverbs 3 verse 5, because I believe it really captures the essence of this passage as we see really the results of both sides, where Proverbs 3 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. David trusts in the Lord, and the Lord continues to make him prosper. Abner openly defies the Lord, trusts in himself, and his result is destruction. And make no mistake about it, Abner's actions are one of open defiance. Abner's move to make Ishbosheth king is not simply just the beginning of some civil conflict as two parties are trying to gain power. And while Ishbosheth is the one who technically becomes king, it's very clear from the text that Ishbosheth serves as nothing more than a puppet that Abner uses to gain this power that he so craves, that he so desires. There's seemingly nothing significant in the text about Ishbosheth other than the fact that he is a son of Saul, which gives him his path to the throne. But to be clear, Abner is the one calling the shots. He is the one running the show. And Abner knew that the Lord had promised the kingship to David. Abner had been by Saul's side. We talked about he he was the commander of Saul's army. He's been by Saul's side. He was there when David killed Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. And he was actually the one who even brought David to Saul afterwards, after this uh, triumphant victory. And David and Abner also later shared a place at Saul's table together. And so David and Abner knew each other very well. And Abner knew, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that David had been appointed by the Lord 
to be the next king of Israel. And in opposing the Lord's chosen king, Abner was opposing the Lord himself. Abner knew the will of the Lord, but instead he chose to fly in the face of it. It's here that I think Abner joins in saying with Herod as well as Pontius Pilate in their press release, we do not want this man to rule over us. In this chapter, we see that the regime of the chosen king has been met with rebellion and with opposition, and this will continue through to the end of this chapter and into the following chapters. And the reality is that this kingdom conflict will continue in one form or another until Jesus returns in glory and in power, as we're reminded in Matthew chapter 13, verses 40 and 41. And if we are the people of God, then we cannot allow the defiance of the latest Abners to deter us. And there does seem to be quite a lot of that going on these days. People who want to be masters of their own body. People who want full autonomy. They don't want God ruling over their lives. They want to be the sovereign ones. And this defiance, this desire to be your own sovereign, you, you're the one calling the shots, this defiance all stems back from the garden. Now, this is nothing new. Remember the devil's lie. You will be like God. It's the same poison that has been packaged in a different way, that's packaged in a number of different ways, but make no mistake, it delivers the same destruction. And as believers, we must recognize that lie for what it is and know that true freedom is only found in Christ. Because of what Christ has done for his children on the cross, there is no reason for us to grow discouraged even when it seems like evil is prevailing. We know that those who are in Christ because of what Scripture tells us, our own testimonies, we know that those who are in Christ are victors in Christ. So let that bring comfort to you this morning. If you are in Christ, you are on the winning side. And if you are not in Christ, the good news of the gospel is that you can be. Christ has made a way for all to come to him through his death on the cross and through his resurrection from the grave so that if you turn from your sins and trust in him, you too can have life. You too can experience true and lasting freedom. This is good news indeed. And as we come into our final section, we again see the different outcomes for Joab's army and Abner's army. And so I titled this section A Tale of Two Armies because these two kingdoms, these two battles, could not be more different. Again, go ahead and follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 12. We're actually going to take it all the way to the end of the chapter. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. 
And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle, and Asahel pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left, and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gaia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken Surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. So from verse 12 all the way through to the end of chapter 4, what we really see is this long and drawn-out story of human politics. A number of men attempt to have an influence on the kingship by their own efforts, and all of them are unsuccessful. None of them are good enough. None of them are wise enough. None of them are powerful enough to accomplish their intended goal, which reaffirms the second half of our transformative truth, do not lean on your own understanding. And as Proverbs 3 continues, what uh, bro- uh, Brother Bob read earlier in the service, as this chapter continues, it says, do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And unfortunately for Abner and the servants of Ishbosheth, we see the exact opposite happen for them. Because they have sought to do things their own way, they will reap what they have sown. And as this section begins, we read that Abner and these men set out from Mahanaim and they head down to Gibeon. And what is crucial to understand, as I'm sure most of you understand at this point, is that Abner is the aggressor in this entire affair. Once again, even the geography would show this to be the case. 
They left from Mahanaim and they came to Gibeon, meaning that they, in order to do this, they would have had to leave where they were staying, cross this river, and then come to the outskirts of where David and his men were. Abner is clearly the one taking the offensive. And so Joab, then meeting Abner at Gibeon, doesn't seem to be an offensive approach, but rather a defensive move to prevent Abner's troops from storming into Jerusalem, just trying to to cut them off, to, to be the roadblock in their way. And so what takes place then is not a civil conflict between two armies. It seems to be a deliberate attempt by Abner to impose his will on David's kingdom. As one commentator points out plainly, Abner is on the attack. The text says that they met at the pool of Gibeon with one army on one side of the pool and the other army on the other side of the pool. So we have another picture of, of what the pool of Gibeon would look like. And so first off, I apologize for these random people on the steps. You can just ignore them. Um, as I was trying to find a picture of this, this was the best picture I could find that really kind of encapsulates what it looks like, shows the pool itself, but also the, the ground surrounding it. Um, but as you can see, if we just ignore the, the, the tourists there, um, as you can see, this was quite a big landmark. Um, this pool was about 37 feet wide and about 35 feet deep, and there were these winding steps um, that would lead people to a water reservoir that was located underneath, um, and, and people would use this pool uh, when their, their town was under siege. If they were under attack and they couldn't leave anywhere, they had a source of water, so they could go down these steps, get in there, and still retrieve the water um, that they needed. And so it was a very important landmark, and, and everyone would have, have known about it. And so if you can picture it with this picture, you have Joab's men on one side of the pool, and then you have Abner's men uh, on the other side. And uh, verse 14 once again shows Abner as the instigator with him saying to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And what just seems so interesting to me about Abner's call here is that this just seems to be a game for Abner. This just seems to be like like pure entertainment for him. In the same way that we would gather around to watch a football game or a baseball game, Abner wants to gather around and watch these men fight to the death. So Joab, not wanting to seem weak, accepts this challenge, and so they have the, the 12 men of Joab's army and the 12 men of, of um, Abner's army, and they come together, and so you can imagine that's, that's not their whole army, so then you have the rest of the people just kind of watching from a distance, watching this duel take place, like they're, they're the spectators in this, in this uh, encounter here. And so they accept this challenge, and they come together, and this duel ensues. Um, And the result of this battle just seems so bizarre. Because verse 16 tells us that all 24 men are killed. The result is a tie. It says that they all took each other by the head and and thrust their their opponents with their their weapons uh, in their side. And all 24 dropped dead. I mean, the timing that must have taken place in order to get that result um, is crazy. And I think Albert Moeller wisely points out that this outcome is providentially ordained. And the Lord is showing that nobody wins when the nation engages in civil war. 
And so this, this tie takes place here with all 24 dying. Verse 16 also tells us as a result that the name of this place is fittingly comes to be known as Helkath Hazarim, which means the field of sword edges. And again, this name seems very fitting, not only for the 12 on 12 duel that just took place, but also for the all out war that breaks out right after. So with this result being a tie, the two armies don't seem to be interested in participation trophies. They decide that there must be a winner here. And verse 17 tells us plainly who wins this battle after it breaks out. Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So kind of like the bully who picks on the wrong kid, Abner, who has been instigating since the beginning, is defeated, as we'll see at the end, handedly by the servants of David. But that's not where this account ends. In verses 18 and 19, we see that the conflict is far from over. It says, And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was swift of foot as a wild gazelle, and Asahel pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. So it says that Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. In other words, Asahel was fast. To quote a popular movie, Asahel makes fast people look not fast. And uh, for those of you guys who, uh, it might be hard to, to think about, but I've never been described as, as swift of foot, as a wild gazelle. Um, but, but Asahel here is, and Asahel uses this strength to his advantage, and he pursues Abner. He, he starts running after Abner, and for the first time in this chapter, Abner is actually the one on the defensive, not wanting to retaliate warning Asahel multiple times to stop chasing him. Asahel may have had the quick feet, but Abner held the spear. And the reason Abner is reluctant here is because he knows that Asahel is no match for him. And he also knows that if he kills Asahel, it's going to further antagonize things with Joab. However, as Asahel continues to gain on him, Abner has no choice but to take matters into his own hands, and he actually kills him uh, with the blunt end of his spear. And so there's people that debate what that means, how that looked, kind of how I think it was, is that Abner is running, Asahel is chasing after him, and Abner keeps warning him, hey, you got to stop, this is is not going to be good for you, and and Asahel continues chasing him, and so finally I imagine Abner just stops and, and jabs backwards, um, however it, it happened, clearly Abner wins this battle um, and, and takes down Asahel. And the text also says that all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. So this also implies that it wasn't just Asahel running after Abner and that it's just the two of them going, but that the rest of the army is also pursuing Abner, but they aren't as swift as gazelles. So they're, they're a little slower, um, unable to keep up with Asahel, but they are, are no doubt in pursuit um, as well. However, there, there are all these men that stop and, and stand still and look at where Asahel has just dropped, dropped dead, but there are two who do not stay still. Verse 24 says, But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. So if you remember, Joab and Abishai are the brothers of Asahel. And Abner was right to anticipate that the killing of Asahel would bring him into direct conflict with Joab. And as this eventful day is 
coming to an end, we see the defeated Abner call out for a truce. I think there's some irony here. You know, Abner is the one who has been instigating all day long. He is the one who came on the offensive in verse 12. He is the one who instigated this 12-on-12 duel that resulted in this battle in verse 14. And now Abner is calling out for this truce. And there's varying interpretations of Joab's response to Abner. Some interpret it that if Abner hadn't spoken in verse 26, called out for this, this ceasefire, um, if he hadn't done this, then the battle would have persisted. Um, but this speech basically made everyone come to their senses and recognize this isn't going to go anywhere. It's only going to get worse from here. That's one interpretation. However, I think a far better interpretation is that Joab is saying essentially, look, if you had never made this challenge from the beginning, none of this would have taken place. You have brought this on yourself. All of this could have been avoided. But whichever actually the interpretation is, we do see that Joab does respond to this. He does withdraw his troops. He blows the trumpet and puts an end to this fierce battle. But before continuing... I think it's worthwhile to pause here and consider the lesson that Abner teaches us. We talked about in verse 14 that Abner makes this call to have a duel as almost entertainment for himself. And then here in verse 26, he cries out for an end to the bloodshed. And I believe that this is a powerful picture of sin. Sin seems pleasant at first. It lies to us and it tells us that it will be worth it, no matter what that sin may be. Whether it is the sin of jealousy, the sin of lust, of gluttony, of pride, whatever it is, all sin promises pleasure at first. Abner thought that this battle would be fun, but he did not realize what it was going to cost him. This decision took Abner much further than he wanted to go. It kept Abner much longer than he wanted to stay. As we continue in the narrative, it will wind up costing him more than he ever thought that he would pay. Though at the end of chapter 2, Abner is actually able to return home. In chapter 3, Joab does get his revenge, and Abner is killed. And his death is directly a result of him engaging in this battle that he had no control over, but what he thought he did. And so it is with us in our battle with sin. You know, too often we can think that we can tame our sin, that, that we are the ones in control. But if we are not careful, our sin will devour us. It is not something that should be taken lightly. As we talked about earlier, the devil is described as a roaring lion. You don't live in close proximity to a roaring lion. Why? Because a roaring lion will eat you. That's why Romans 8.13 talks about us needing to put our sin to death. That is how we fight sin, by killing it. John Owen has famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That is how we fight sin. There's no alternative. Even that verse, Romans 8.13, says that if we live by the flesh, we will die. But if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, we will live. That is how. That is the only way that we fight sin, by 
putting it to death and by gaining a superior satisfaction for the Lord, a, a superior love and desire for Him. And I would encourage you to pray and ask the Lord to reveal to you sins that you seem to maybe be more casual about, sins that you don't take as seriously. I find that oftentimes when people talk about sin in their life, they highlight one or two major ones, and and I can be guilty of this same thing, that seem to have a hold on them, and, and then they neglect smaller sins that go unnoticed, that slip under the radar, but that are just as deadly. And it's also important to note that this decision did not only affect Abner. At the end of the chapter, we read that Abner and his army killed 20 of the men of David, but that the men of David killed 360 men of Ishbosheth. We don't sin in a vacuum. Our decisions affect other people. And oftentimes, the people it affects are those that we love most our family, our friends our church family. We need to recognize that our sin goes past just ourselves. And I think this picture of sin being deadly is seen so clearly in this account in 2 Samuel 2 where we end the chapter with a funeral. Verse 32 says, And they took Asahel and they buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. And this ending represents the bitter ending of sin. Matthew Henry comments, This is true of every sin. Oh, that men would consider it in time, that it will be bitterness in the latter end. This fate would soon befall Abner in just a short while, but here Asahel is the one who is buried. And Asahel's funeral is mentioned here, but the rest of the men who were in this battle are actually buried in the field of battle. And so here we have some distinctions that are made here between the death of Asahel, the, the dust of Asahel, so to speak, and the dust of the others. But in the resurrection, no difference will be made except between the godly and the ungodly. And that difference will remain forever. And the hope of the gospel is that while those who reject Christ will be eternally separated from him, those who have believed in Christ and have received him by faith, will be eternally united with Christ in glory forever. As we read last week for our scripture reading in Revelation 21, that will be a day of unbelievable celebration for the, unbe- for the believer, where he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither that shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Amen. What a day that will be. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for the lessons that we receive from your word. And Lord, we know that your truth is living and active and that it is sharper than any double-edged sword. We pray that you would use your word and the message that was just preached to convict us, Father. Help us to recognize the areas in our lives where we fall short. Help us to also recognize that for the believer, we have an immense hope because of your great salvation. Because of your son, there will be a day for the believer where there will be no more tears and no more pain, where sin will be defeated. 
And God, as we await that day, I also want to pray for anyone here that does not know you. God, I pray that you would overwhelm them with the truth of your word. Lord, I pray you'd even make them uncomfortable and convict them of their wicked ways. Lord, as my dear brother used to always say, I ask that you would send the hound dog of heaven after their souls and that you would draw them to repentance, O Father. We praise you that you are a God who delights in turning hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. We ask that you would do this wonderful work today. We ask this in your name.